Welcome to the Essay for FAs Retirement Advisor Podcast, a series that addresses issues of importance to financial advisors when dealing with the preeminent issue on their clients' minds, namely their desire for financial independence. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and it is an honor to be speaking today with UBS investment strategist Michael Crook, and I'll tell you why. As longtime listeners know, I'm an avid consumer of all kinds of investment research, and most of it is just so-so. What's more, I don't associate large investment firms as cutting edge. But thanks to our guest, UBS is an exception. His research on retirement issues is steeped in investment reality, and thus an exceptionally valuable resource for advisors. We will speak with Michael in just a moment, but first, this word on behalf of our sponsor, Nationwide. This podcast is brought to you by Nationwide. Nationwide's New Heights fixed indexed annuities now offer an optional living benefit rider with a 7% roll-up, available at additional cost. Learn more at nationwidenewheights.com. Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Gil. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. To help our listeners get better acquainted, could you tell us first how many UBS advisors there are, and second, what is your relationship to them? Meaning, how do they use your research? And if you're able to be open about this, what proportion of the advisors utilize you and your team as a resource? I imagine they're free to adopt any approach they want and they don't need to follow the house view. So, I, you know, I should know the exact answer to that question, Kel, but we have, a, we have over 6,000 advisors at UBS. And my relationship to them is I work in our chief investment office, which is our research arm for wealth management. Uh, so we're providing a lot of the context that they use, the, the, the research and the content to manage client portfolios. And you know, our clients are families, institutions like foundations. And we have a really pretty broad spectrum of, uh, of investors that we work with in, in that sense. In terms of the, the advisors that, that use our content, I would say that we have a, uh, a pretty good core group of advisors that, that's probably in the, um, say, the, the 2000 range that are very active and avid readers of what we produce. But when we look at who's actually implementing our advice in terms of using the, the frameworks that we talk about, it's well over half of our advisors that do it in a, in a pretty specific and direct way. We publish uh, research just like most people publish research and when you think about um, the traditional way of, of doing research. But we also think it's really important that we move beyond that and we, and we integrate our research into the systems and the tools that our advisors are using. And that's where we see most of the, the demand and the usage and, and how we can actually track what's making it through to our client accounts. One thing I really like about your approach is your emphasis on liability-driven investment, what UBS calls its 3L strategy, liquidity, longevity, legacy. Could you expand on this, Michael? Absolutely. I don't think I would ever say liability-driven investing to a client or to most clients. If you're working with an actuary, they would actually know what that means. But I... I really believe we have way too much jargon in this industry. And saying something like liability-driven investing probably isn't that much better than um, talking to a retiree about their portfolio's beta. It's just not a concept that it's really going to resonate or probably provide any actual clarity to what they're trying to accomplish. So the 3L concept, the liquidity, longevity, legacy that you mentioned, that does come from liability-driven investing and, and also a bit of an adoption of, I guess I'd frame it as the endowment approach, but by designing an investment approach that is really oriented towards 
those actual objectives. Endowments and foundations are really good at accomplishing what they're trying to do. Um, within wealth management, what I found, there's still a lot of focus on the 1950s way of investing. Um, thinking about modern portfolio theory, uh, quantifying risk as standard deviation or variance, clients have no idea what that means. I, I, I've been doing this a long time. You have too. We don't really know what that means. It's hard to, um, to communicate uh, what a 12% standard deviation means to, a, to an investor and why they should even care um, based on where they're at in different parts of their life cycle. So what we try to do is really take advantage of all this great work that's been done institutionally and have a good behavioral finance overlay, uh, get rid of all the jargon, stop, you know, st stop using terms that clients don't understand and reframe their investments uh, and their, their investment strategy in, in terms that they understand. And, and that's where the 3L concept comes from. Uh, liquidity uh, is simply defined as the, the money that they're going to need for the next three to five years. And the point there is to have a source of spending that gets them through a recession um, and enables them to not have to touch their risk assets uh, through, that, through, through the downturn and the recovery. I think the important aspect there is that there is a behavioral component to it uh, because if we have a significant bear market, that, that can cause a lot of discomfort. And so we want to make sure that, it, that our clients know where their spending is going to come from. They don't have to change their lifestyle uh, during that period. Uh, the longevity portfolio, the longevity strategy is essentially all of the assets they're going to need for the rest of their lifetime from a pension standpoint. So listeners familiar with, with actual LDI would think of that as the risk portfolio. For our clients, that tends to be more of a balanced approach, but there's uh, there are some nuances in terms of how you create that. Uh, but what you can say to a to a, to an investor at that point is, you have everything you need to meet all of your objectives for the rest of your life. We know, we know how to manage this appropriately. You can stop worrying so much about tweets and short-term news and things like that and go live your life. And whatever's left over, the surplus, whatever clients won't use during their lifetime, which you know, whether your net worth is half a million dollars or a million dollars or a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, most people have a legacy of some sort. That's what we call the legacy strategy. We like to hold to to separate it from the personal assets of liquidity and longevity. And for most people that gets treated differently. And then we, we, the last thing I'd mention is we think about this holistically. So it's not just investment assets, it's insurance. So life insurance goes into legacy. My, you know, I, I don't have, um, I wish I did, right? But I, I don't have a large legacy portfolio at this stage in my life. But I do have life insurance. I do have 529 accounts for my kids. Those are legacy assets because I, I want to have an impact on the lives of others. Um, and so that's, uh, that, that's generally speaking how we frame it out. What we find is, it helps investors understand why we're doing what we're doing. When we go through difficult periods in the market, like the end of last year, it's a lot easier to look at your uh, investment strategy and really understand why some things have lost money, but that it doesn't matter because that's they're appropriately invested for the specific objectives. And to know that you're not going to have to change your plans based on whatever's going on in the market at the time. That's fascinating. You've criticized the so-called buckets approach, yet some view these as related ideas. Could you distinguish between them for our listeners? Sure. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the bucket approach is. I guess is the reason I criticize it. I've I've seen some reports where you know some some strategists are big fans of the bucket approach, and some published pieces saying the bucket approach doesn't work, but. You have to know what you're actually talking about when you're talking about a certain approach. There's nothing special about mental accounting, which is really what bucketing is. Um, some behavioral finance 
specialists will say that mental accounting is bad. I'm not sure that that's true. I think mental accounting can be very useful for people if it helps them make better decisions. If there's a criticism there, it's that everything gets muddled together. The, the, you know, the frameworks that I've seen are, sub, are, are oriented around holding one year of cash and, the, and say the rest of someone's assets and equities. You don't need 50 pages of, a, of an article to, to tell somebody that, or to figure out that that won't work um, because we just simply know that the drawdowns in equity markets are, are way too substantial and, and too long of a duration for, for that one year of cash to even matter. You know, If somebody wants to think about the three L's as bucketing, that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, we tend to try to use the word strategy uh, for each of them as opposed to bucket because I, I think that it hopefully implies that it's more than just investment assets. Um, you know, long-term care policies would go on a longevity portfolio, your pensions and your social security are part of your liquidity strategy. We're really trying to just provide clarity through this approach. Well said. I saw a really interesting idea on your blog, which I think typifies the utility and originality of your approach. You spoke of saving your progress because there are no cheat codes for retirement. Could you explain this for our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Really, what I'm talking about with uh, with saving progress is we seem to have this uh, this aspect of always marking our progress to the high water mark in terms of um, of our investment portfolios. And if I talk to investors, and if we're being realistic about our expectations, um, if you were 55 during the financial crisis and you're 65 now and and thinking about retirement, you're probably a lot further along than you expected to be. Because of the the bull market, and instead of marking your uh, say your goals to market and um, and deciding that you're simply going to escalate your lifestyle and maintain, maintaining a a very you know pretty aggressive portfolio as you get close to retirement, you, uh, you there, there's certainly some I think benefit to actually re- reducing risk of the portfolio in the portfolio, locking in those gains, and uh, and knowing that you've manage to increase the certainty that you have around living the the lifestyle that you want. I think that's really what a lot of people should be thinking about right now. A lot of retirees is where they're at relative to um, what their actual goals and objectives are and how a bear market would impact that. You know, the the analogy I gave in the post was, you know, when when I was a kid playing Nintendo, if something if you got to a certain point in the game and, and something happened, um, you were not able to uh, to save your progress, and that was a feature of games that came along later and um, you know later in I guess the '90s or the 2000s or some point. But in the early '80s, you certainly couldn't save your progress in, in most of the games. And so the same thing is true for for retirement. If you if you've done really well and you're at a point that you want to be um, in terms of being able to retire. If we have a bear market and you haven't appropriately adjusted your portfolio to, to uh, before that happens, you can't go back in time and simply uh, have a redo. There's a there's a big time component to that where you're likely either going to have to reduce your spending in retirement, um, keep working longer than you planned to, or make some other change. Well, I told our listeners you're steeped in investment reality, and that certainly demonstrates that. Another question for you: If an investor or after an investor has saved his progress. Do you feel that re-risking is appropriate? Absolutely, I do. I think the way I'd frame this is for the average person in life that has you know normal market outcomes, they, they go through bear markets and they go through cycles, but they're not unlucky in the sense that they don't have a, a big bear market right after they retire. I think that the glide path, so to say, that I would expect to see over their lifetime is one that starts off relatively aggressive. Um, nearly all equity. If I can convince somebody who's in their 20s and 30s and 40s and even likely in their 50s, um, at least their early 50s, to hold 
pretty much an all equity portfolio, I, I would. The reason for that is even in a bad scenario where equity markets don't perform all that well, those portfolios still do better than portfolios that are highly concentrated in bonds. And so you have more volatility, but you also have income. And so if you can simply get used to that while you're working, I published a recent uh, article in the Journal of Retirement about this. You should be looking at how well-funded you are relative to your, your objectives. And once you're close to, say, 70 or 80 or 90% funded, so you have 70, 80, 90% of the money that you need for retirement, you should start reducing risk. And the reason for that is simply that a big bear market would be pretty devastating, but you're by glide pathing your equity portfolio down as you approach retirement, you, you can do a pretty good job of locking it in. If you happen to get the dot-com boom in your 40s or your early 50s, take advantage of it and lock some of that in. Um, don't act, kind of naively just, just keep holding that equity portfolio. But then the, the aspect that you mentioned in terms of a legacy portfolio, as investors age, we'd actually expect that legacy portfolio to grow. Assuming that they're not proactively giving the money away, which which a lot of people do, um, a, a, absolutely. But to the extent that that money is growing unencumbered for, for decades sometimes, that becomes an increasingly large percentage of their overall assets. And uh, and that means that the overall glide path is kind of a U-shape uh, where you have a lot of risk earlier in life. You reduce it as you approach retirement, but then because your your assets are becoming predominantly legacy assets as you age, you might actually see an uptick in risk as you, um, as you move uh, through retirement. The caveat to that though is that it should be custom. And that's why liquidity, longevity, legacy works. Say you happen to have a, um, a worse outcome, uh, an unlucky outcome earlier in retirement, and that longevity strategy uh, simply doesn't have, didn't get the returns that you expected and you had a bit of a drawdown. Uh, most likely, you wouldn't increase risk over the course of retirement, uh, as um, like somebody who had better equity market returns. And that's that's really the key here is that it's the right strategy for the specific family, based on their objectives, and taking into account the outcomes that they're actually getting in the stock market, rather than or in the overall investment portfolio, I should say, rather than something that's a pre pre planned path of of investment strategy. A new year is upon us, and indeed a new decade. Are there any interesting themes of particular interest to UBS now? Gil, I think some of the main things that we're looking at from a thematic standpoint are how to manage portfolios in a return environment where fixed income isn't going to provide all that much in terms of real returns, inflation-adjusted returns for investors. Um, maybe longer term, from, a, from the investment side, some of the areas that we think offer good opportunities for clients that are find, looking for ways to outperform the market or try to add some value in that in that sense to their portfolio. So let me start with the first. Uh, you know, we're we're heading back at, <clears throat> it seems to an environment where the the returns that clients get on high quality fixed income might just uh, match inflation, if not if not uh, underperform inflation, which is a challenge. We know that we certainly need some high quality fixed income in a portfolio uh, for certain reasons. One would be for cash flow, and I, I don't necessarily think about the yield as the important part, but building a bond ladder that uh, provides the cash flow clients need when the bonds mature is, is a pretty effective way of ensuring that they have the income that they that they need in retirement. We, we can't ignore that as a very important investment objective. And um, secondly, long duration, high quality fixed income, we still believe offers uh, you know one of the few ways to protect a portfolio in a big equity market drawdown. So we, we can't ignore those assets. What I would bring it back to is we only want to own as much as we have to. 
there's no reason to reach for yield in a liquidity strategy. So we tend to build that with one year of cash and a three to five year bond ladder. And then within a longevity strategy, again, this is something I think for advisors, the way I might frame it, not for clients, but some of their liabilities are long duration. You know, spending that happens 10, 20, 30 40 years from now, that's a long duration liability. And so the bonds that we hold in that portfolio, we generally would want to see at least intermediate duration bonds, if not longer duration bonds in that portfolio to reflect those liabilities. So that, that would be my starting point. We are looking at ways to risk consciously or prudently maybe try to improve some of those outcomes. One is... Um, looking at things like market link CDs as a component of a liquidity strategy. So market link CDs are FDIC insured. So you have that protection. You could build a ladder of those knowing that the, and they tend to be tied to an equity market, knowing that um, at maturity, you might underperform treasuries, but you're also adding a bit of some potential for upside. So some clients certainly have been attracted to that idea because they feel like even if it matures at with a zero return, it's not they're not giving that much up compared to what they're getting out of short-term fixed income. Um, so they, they like the higher potential. And on the longevity side, when we have opportunities to extend the duration of the portfolio, like last year when interest rates moved up a bit, we did. And so being able to get more bang for our buck out of the, the fixed income that we're holding, I'd rather hold less with a longer duration when the market gives me that, that opportunity than hold just a really a large bond portfolio that... Um, it, you know, it's going to be pretty challenging to create the returns that clients are looking for or that they need um, for retirement. The, um, I guess from the investment side, the, the couple things that I would mention is most of the clients I'd imagine advisors are, are working with baby boomers. Um, and we see that in all of the data about wealth management across the industry. The things that they're going to need are likely the good investment opportunities. We're nowhere built out in terms of the, um, what we need from a uh, capacity standpoint around long-term care and medical services um, and even some of the uh, so, so some of the new technology in terms of uh, medical devices and things like that we see those as investment opportunities um, I'm not um, able to talk about single stocks or anything like that the podcast but we do have a lot of research from our equity team around some of those opportunities and, and how they might play out over time I think it's important for people to both be thinking about it on the investment side but then also on the on their financial planning side and how they're going to handle those issues. We tend to see that even when somebody has a good financial plan or they believe that they have a good financial plan, they probably haven't spent enough time thinking about either medical expenses and how those will change over time, or I think more importantly, long-term care expenses. We, we did some research probably two or three years ago now um, that we published, I believe it was the Journal of Wealth Management around long-term care might have been the Journal of Retirement. But um, the what we looked at there was instead of scare tactics around long-term care, you know, they, sometimes you see these reports that say the, you'll spend a million dollars on long-term care or something like that. And um, that's it's not true. I mean, some people will and they're the really unlucky ones. But the better way to look at long-term care is to recognize that this is not like your house burning, uh, burning down. Long-term care is no longer a um, an unusual but highly expensive event. It's something that almost all couples will have to pay for at some point. So if you take a 65-year-old healthy couple, there's a um, 85 or so percent chance 
that they will need some long-term care services while they're in retirement. And we have to make sure that they know how they're going to cover those expenses. Last question, Michael. I imagine you're on the road a lot meeting with financial advisors. Could you share any rubber-meets-the-road anecdotes of advisor-client successes? I, I am on the road a lot, meeting with advisors and with clients. And I um, maybe a little too much. I try to cut back on that a little bit this year. With, uh, I have a couple of young kids, so I try to spend more time with them. Um, but I love what I, when I'm working with clients and families is successes where we take a situation that is uncertain or uncomfortable for them and we leave them in a situation, in, in a place where they completely understand you know, why they're working with us. Um, the relationship that they have with us, they're, they feel much closer to the advisors um, that they're working with, and they, they understand that we get it. People don't save money so that they can maximize you know, their alphas or their sharp ratios or things like that. It's, nobody's ever finished retirement and said, you know, that was successful. I really, really optimized my sharp ratio for that, that period. Um, and it's all about what they can do for themselves, for their families, and for others. Yeah, I'll give you a couple specific examples here. One, I'll use more of a ultra high net worth uh, situation. We had a um, a client out uh, out west, and he was um, he was like a lot of retirees, to be honest, wealthy or not. Work tends to be an important component of our lives in terms of our self value. So he had retired. Um, you know, he had all of the money to do anything he wanted to in life, but he was basically playing a lot of golf and um, said something to me that isn't all that unusual. I hear this relatively frequently, usually over dinner after a couple of drinks and um, not during the formal meeting, but basically said, "Look, I'm I'm bored. I don't really understand what my purpose is. I want to have um, you know, I have an impact. And I see my neighbors get in their cars and drive to work. You know, I wish I could just get back in the car with them and go. And what we did was we started, he was using the liquidity longevity legacy framework, um, but hadn't, frankly, I don't think it spent too much time actually thinking about his goals. And you know, one thing we didn't talk about, but I think is important is you have to know, at least have some sense of what your objectives are um, to really be able to do this effectively. I think it was a catalyst for for him and his family to sit down and and really think about what they wanted, what the purpose of the money was, and why they spent so much time and effort actually saving it and earning it to start with. And so he his legacy portfolio was substantial. He started working really closely with a hospital that was involved in a in a cause that he really cared about, and ended up donating a substantial amount of money and building a new wing for this hospital. I mean, this is not something that most people will be able to do, but this was a really big event for him. Um, we were lucky enough to be able to go to the, you know, the groundbreaking and be involved in, in that aspect of it. He was literally you know, in tears in terms of how happy he was about being able to do this. But it was because we stopped talking about sharp ratios. And I mean that proverbially, right? I, not, not any one person stopped talking about sharp ratios. But as an industry, we stopped talking about sharp ratios to him and we started talking about what the money actually meant. So I, I see that type of situation a lot. The other side of that is a husband and a wife will look at each other in a meeting after we've gone through the liquidity longevity legacy process. They'll see the legacy number and they'll say, well, we're not leaving that much to the kids. Um, and so that they, but they start focusing on their impact and what they're going to do with that as opposed to leaving it to chance. The flip side of it is I think that this has enabled um, people to become a lot more comfortable with the, uh, with, with their investments giving up their income, re actually retiring and go and living the, the retirement life they want to live. You know, a big part of that is helping them understand why they or understand what they own and why they own it and being able to always track back to that simple concept of equity market is down, but you know why you own those equities and you understand that 
even though they're down, it it doesn't impact you. Same thing with fixed income. See, interest rates do move up at some point. Um, they see losses in their fixed income. Worst case is that they an investor thinks, well, I don't want to own that to start with. And they start really doubting the overall strategy. If they know why they own that fixed income, they know it's there to pr- either produce income or provide uh, diversification, they can be much more comfortable with it. And what I'd say is when we had that 20% drawdown, which was not a bear market at the end of last year, but we had a 20% drawdown, we saw that clients using the 3L framework behaved better. And what I what I mean by that is, you know, this this is anecdotal, but advisors that had clients hist- that historically would have been really worried, um, they said that they got fewer phone calls. And in fact, when they called those clients to just check in, the clients re- replayed back the 3L framework to the advisor, said, I completely understand what's going on. In fact, why don't we take advantage of this? Um, which of course is we want everybody to have that that playbook when they go into the bear market and know exactly what they're going to do to take advantage of it. Um, and so the framework, the 3L framework is is a way that we we find and that we believe helps them do that. Stop talking sharp ratios, start talking investment reality. Your clients will see that you get it. Wise words from UBS investment strategist, Michael Crook. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Gil. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast useful, consider passing it on to one other advisor. Also, feel free to contact me at gil at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich, and our podcast was sponsored by Nationwide.